All right, we're continuing our series on the Holy Spirit, and as we do so, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, actually. Ephesians chapter 4, we're making our way through this, and as we go through the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of it, and what does the Holy Spirit mean? There is a, a fault that we can find ourselves coming to when it comes to this, the third person of the Trinity, and that is we may not give much attention to the fact that we are dealing with a person when we are talking about the Holy Spirit. It's not uncommon to slip into the mistake of referring to the Holy, Holy Spirit as an it or this, but he is a he. The Holy Spirit is a person. Nothing can be further from the truth than to refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. It is not an it, it is a he. <laughs> and even by saying those sentences, I contradicted myself, I realize, but I'm trying to get a point across. Because it's clear from the Bible, and particularly clear from the verse we're about to read, that the Holy Spirit is a person. And specifically, as it relates to a person, the Holy Spirit is a person that can be grieved. And that's why Paul gives the directive he gives. It's a staggering thought when it comes to the third person of the Trinity that the Holy Spirit can be saddened by what we do. He can be grieved by what we do. If that were not the case, then the directive we read in Ephesians 4, verse 30 would not make sense. This is an important fact that we need to dwell on. It is very clear that the personality and the person of the Holy Spirit can be grieved by what we do. And so we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, he says, Paul writing to the Ephesians, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Growing up, there were a list of things, probably not unlike many of your homes that you grew up in or your homes presently, there were a list of things that we were not allowed to do. And certainly there are things, as a, as a child, the reason why you should not do them is because mom and dad told you so. Don't do that so you don't do that. But even still, there were rules that we couldn't do, and there were reasons for those rules. For example, we were not allowed to shoot our BB guns in the front yard. And the reason for that is because Dad's car was often parked in the driveway in the front yard. And uh, I remember one time disobeying said rule and shooting Dad's car window out with my BB gun, which was a violation of that rule, which was designed to protect such a thing from happening. I lost my BB gun for a period of time because of that one. We weren't allowed to touch the wood stove. Pretty obvious as to why you shouldn't touch the wood stove. It's hot, you'll get burned, and that was the reason. We, we weren't allowed to ride as fast as we could down the hill leading out of our neighborhood. I said, really, why could you not go as fast as you can out your neighborhood down the hill? Well, because my sister tried that once and almost got hit by a car. So that became a rule in our neighborhood. And speaking of, of bikes, we could not ride our bicycles without a helmet on. And uh, that was a good rule because when I was in first grade, I got a concussion, which maybe explains a lot of who I am today uh, from riding on a bike. But we had to have a helmet on. So there were rules, but there were also reasons for those rules. There were important motivations. And of course, even when giving those motivations, there was still a chief motivation. The chief motivation being, children, obey your parents, for this is right. But yet there were also clear motivations. I give that to you because when it comes to the Bible, we know that we are not to sin. 
And there are motivations for that that the Bible actually explains to us. Don't sin because, and there are several of them. For example, don't sin, the Bible says, because sin hurts you. That God designed his commandments for our blessing, for our protection. There are built-in consequences when we violate his holy standards. And so God warns us in Galatians, whatever you reap... You will sow. And the Bible clearly warns that eventually sin leads to death in Romans chapter 6. So don't sin because sin does hurt you. And, and don't sin, the Bible says, because sin hurts others. This is obvious with many sins. For example, murder would certainly hurt someone else. Uh, but even stealing and gossip and the like. It's true of any sin. Even private thoughts can hurt Others, as Paul would say in Ephesians 4, verse 25, we are members one of another. My sin will hurt my wife. My sin will hurt my children. My sin will hurt my friends, and so on. Sin weakens my relationships with others. Don't sin because sin hurts others. And, and don't sin ultimately because God will judge unrepentant sinners. The Bible gives abundant warning that no unrepentant sin will be excused by God's judgment. So this is a good reason to repent and turn from sin. If you don't, you will be judged for your sin. Now, we could probably add to those three, couldn't you? I mean, maybe you're even thinking of some, and I'm certain that you could go through Scripture, and you could comb through Scripture, and you could see many times where God gives a rule, a commandment, and there's a chief motivation, but there's also a clear indication as to these, these other reasons as well. But we still haven't come to one of the best reasons not to sin. And one of the best reasons not to sin is found in the verse we just read. Ultimately, Paul says, don't sin because sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, in the context that we've just read, we just read verse 30, and now we begin to look at the further context surrounding that verse. Paul has been showing in these verses what it means to live as a Christian in a pagan world. We are not to live, Paul says, as the rest of the world lives. Look what he says in verse 17. This I say, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. Don't walk this way in the vanity of your mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through ignorance of them that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. And so Paul has indicated in this context, don't walk as other Gentiles, other sinners walk. There's a distinctiveness in your walk if you're saved. Rather, if you are saved, walk as those who are created new in Christ Jesus. Put off old stuff, put on new stuff. And so he says in verse 22, put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind And now what do you do? And put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And now specifically, beginning in verse 25 to verse 29, Paul says this means if you put on a new character, a new lifestyle, a new walk, there will be things you don't do. There will be things you'll put away, and there will be new things that you'll do. For example, verse 25, you will put away falsehood, And instead you will speak truth, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. 
Verse 26, you will put away unrighteous anger. He says, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon, down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. In other words, if you did stay angry, you would be giving a place to the devil. Verse 29, he says, you're not going to steal. Instead, you're going to work honestly. Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed in your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister. Verse 28, rather, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands. And then verse 29, you're not going to speak corrupt communications. Instead, you're going to speak truth, as we just read. And Paul will go on to say, if we skip our verse, verse 30, Paul will go on to say in verses 31 and 32 that as Christians... We will put off, and he will list some things. We'll put off bitterness and anger, and instead we'll put on being kind and tenderhearted and forgiving towards one another, as Christ is our chief motivation in all of this. But then the list of all of those kind of old and new, and that's really clearly what he's doing. He's laying up the old against the new. In the midst of that, he gives a chief motivation. Don't keep putting on the old garments of the flesh. Why, Paul? Because sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Right in the middle of giving all these specific behavioral changes, Paul gives the supreme motivation why we should make those changes. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And verse 30 is a general principle with a direct connection to all the verses that are surrounding it. All the verses surrounding it are showing old, new. Don't be like the old, be like the new. And then right there in the middle in verse 30 is your motivation for doing this. If you act like the old, it will grieve the Holy Spirit. So live life in the new which will bring glory to God and not grieve the Holy Spirit. After all, we'll see three motivations for this in this passage. Number one, your sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Why does it grieve the Holy Spirit? Number one, because he loves you. This verse is one of the many verses that clearly indicate that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not just an influence. Cults, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, deny the Trinity, and they say that the Spirit of God is simply his power or his force over you and his force at work in the world. That's what the Holy Spirit is. But you can't grieve a force. You can't grieve some nebulous power. You can only grieve a person. You especially grieve a person that loves you. You, even in your own relationships, might be able to tolerate unkind remarks from a stranger because you don't know that person. They can say you, boy, that, that shirt's ugly, and you're like, oh, okay, right, whatever. I don't even know who you are, right? It might hurt you a little bit, but it would hurt a lot more if someone who you love makes an unkind remark. That's hurtful. And the deeper the love that you have between you, the deeper the grief when sin hurts that relationship. And Paul here is not appealing to his readers to adhere to a certain moral standard, put off this other stuff, put on this new stuff, simply because it is the right thing to do, although it is the right thing to do. He's not even appealing to them to obey these moral commands because it will benefit them. If you put off this old stuff and you put on this new stuff, you'll be better for it, although it would seem you will be better for it. Rather, 
He appeals to them on the basis of a very personal relationship with a loving God, specifically the Holy Spirit. And sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Through faith in Christ, you enter into a personal relationship with the Holy God, the triune God. And the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, indwells you. In fact, your body becomes his temple. And on the basis of these facts, Paul exhorts you to glorify God in your body. Remember what he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? What? As if to say, are you serious about something for a moment? Don't you know? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? He's in you. You have of God. You are not your own. For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What's the motivation for your glorifying God with your behavior? Because you are the Holy Spirit's temple. He indwells you. And sin strains that personal relationship you are not ought to enjoy with the loving, indwelling Spirit of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book Darkness and Light, points out that this verse distinguishes Christian ethics from every other ethical system. There are all kinds of ethical systems that you, you, know, you should behave in such and such a way that is moral and good, but their motivations are distinguished. Christians, Christian ethics and its moral distinctions and its motivations for those moral distinguish, distinctions are distinguished for this reason. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Other religions have ethical standards But none of those other religions command their followers not to sin because their sin grieves God. Isn't that interesting? We may think about the love of God and the love of Jesus, but most of us don't think about the love of the Holy Spirit. But we know that as a member of the Godhead, the Spirit is love because God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Behold, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Romans 15, verse 13, 30 says, I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Also, we probably think about fellowship with God. We may even think about fellowship with Jesus, but we don't often, as much as we should, think about fellowship with the Holy Spirit. But that is what the Bible communicates. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion, that's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. That's Paul's prayer for the Corinthians as he ends that book. This may refer to fellowship that the Spirit produces between believers or to our fellowship with the Holy Spirit, but the point Paul is making, and I'm making here, is that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, not merely a supernatural force. And he loves you. He he desires to have fellowship with you. And Paul is saying in this verse, don't sin because your sin grieves the loving Holy Spirit of God who dwells in you. The next time you sin, I want you to think in terms of this verse and realize your sin hurts the Holy Spirit. Don't sin because the Holy Spirit loves you. Dear brethren, such a, 
surely this would be dissuasive for you from evil if you truly have the Holy Spirit in you. And such a persuasive attitude should dissuade you from evil and should persuade you to good. This is mightier than all abstract walls you might be able to establish. I shouldn't do this because, and if you fill in anything else other than this, it will not be as chiefly motivating as this. Don't sin because he loves you. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. And with that love, we could kind of fraction that off a little further and more splendidly as we understand if he loves me, then he also loves others. And so number two, your sin grieves the Holy Spirit because he loves others. Our sin always hurts others. And the Spirit loves others. In the context, Paul has especially been referring to sins that disrupt the unity of the body. And notice the word that begins verse 30. The word that begins verse 30 is the word and. If you've been with us in the Gospel of Mark, you now know, I hope, what this word does, how it operates. And it operates much the same here as it does in the Gospel of Mark. The word and connects verse 30 to verse 29. So it immediately connects what's going on here. And, and what was going on in verse 29 that is now connecting to verse 30? Let's read verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And, it's connected right to it, grieve not the Holy Spirit. So what is Paul talking about in verse 29? Paul is talking about this communicative, edifying relationship you ought to have as a believer with other believers. By the way, this same truth could be said for all the other verses. Verse 25 is about lying and how lying hurts others. Verse 26, and actually verse 31, is about sinful anger and how sinful anger hurts other people. Verse 28 is about stealing, and stealing hurts other people. All of these verses are about sins that hurt other people, and God loves other people. When you hurt other people, you hurt God. It's like a father who sees one of his children hurting one of his other children. He loves them both. He wants them to get along. So it grieves him when one of his children is hurting another of his children. And Paul continues with this sweeping changes of character and it grieves the Spirit when we treat each other in the flesh. It hurts him. Paul lists these terrible actions that actually grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 30 again is don't grieve. And so he says, verse 31, if your motivation is to not grieve the Holy Spirit, get rid of some things. Let let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. The world acts like this. Verse 17 started it by saying, don't act like the world. Christians shouldn't act like that. Bitterness? A Christian cannot be bitter. We cannot be bitter against one another. We cannot be bitter in our marriages. There is no room for bitterness in the hearts of God's people. It hurts the Holy Spirit when there's bitterness. Wrath? No human deserves our wrath, and yet we try to justify it. Someone does something to us and we say they deserve it. And we are setting ourselves up as a God. And in that way, Paul would say in Romans, let vengeance be God's. 
Let him handle. Why do we think anyone deserves the venting of our anger? We are being selfish, and we have forgotten God's grace, and we've also forgotten God's justice when we do that. Clamor? Clamor is easy because it sounds like what the word sounds like. Just making noise out of anger. Slamming doors, banging objects. That's what clamor is. Ill will towards evil, other people. Evil speaking. There are those comments that are meant to put other people down. That is literally their intention. Instead, Paul says, our interactions with one another are to be governed in a wholly different way. Be kind one to another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Why do we think that we get an excuse out of this? Why do we think we do not have to be kind to one another? It is shocking to consider that we can often do more good to strangers that we don't know than brothers and sisters that we do know. We do good towards our co-workers, but we're not as good towards our spouses. How can this be? We are to display kindness and compassion and forgiveness. This is what the new self looks like. This requires a renewal of the mind. This comes from an indwelling of the Spirit. And when it doesn't happen, it grieves the Spirit. Here is the mind to have. Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Someone once said, people need loving the most when they deserve it the least. The word and, again, I highlight, connects verse 30 to verse 29. And in verse 29, rotten speech is said to implicitly tear down others, whereas gracious speech builds people up. So apparently, the thing that really hurts the Holy Spirit are loose lips in the church. You want to hurt the Holy Spirit? Be part of and listen to gossip. Men grieve the Spirit when they ascribe to Him those emotions and actions which are contrary to His nature. The Holy Spirit is grieved when we sin because He loves us and because He loves others even more than we can think we love others. But there's a third and perhaps most chief motivation for why it would grieve the Holy Spirit. And it's the third one that we close with, and it's the one that should cause us to shudder to think that we aren't holding up to this standard. You see, your sin grieves the Holy Spirit because He loves holiness. When we talk about God's holiness, we see a connection between God's holiness, righteousness, and judges and justice. The literal Greek construct of, of this verse could put it this way. If you want to just literally spell it out, it would say, and do not grieve the Spirit the Holy One of God. And, and so the emphasis on the Spirit's nature in this verse is that the Holy Spirit is holy. He is the Holy One of God. And it, and it puts an emphasis on His holiness. If, if there's an emphasis on, well, it's a pretty obvious one, on, on the third person of the Trinity, the emphasis is clearly on His holiness. This last point should write itself, because I've already said Holy Spirit all along during this series. But I think so, so many times we hear it, we, we almost need to just pause for a moment in our familiarity and recognize what is being communicated when we call the Holy Spirit holy. 1 John 1 verse 5 says, God is light. 
In Him there is no darkness at all. What we're saying is, God's holiness means that He is absolutely set apart from, and more than that, He is opposed to sin and all unrighteousness. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16 says, God dwells in unapproachable light. Think about that for a moment. Isaiah 6, verse 3 just puts it straight. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. When we speak of God's actions, we must always recognize that God will not, cannot, and does not do anything that is evil. His holiness is the certainty that there is no sin in His actions. There was a popular misunderstanding that God's grace means that he tolerates a certain amount of sin in his children, much as a doting father sees his toddler disobey and chuckles, he's just a chip off the old block. But the Holy Spirit never chuckles at our sin. He is not amused by it. He is holy, which means that all sin, especially the sin of his redeemed children, grieves him. If our trust is in Christ, then we do not need to fear God's judgment for our sins. Praise the Lord for it. But we can grieve the Holy Spirit. There's nothing done that is wicked that finds favor with God. He not only avoids evil, he abhors evil. R.C. Sproul makes this insightful observation about Isaiah 6 that I left on the screen for this reason. In his helpful book, The Holiness of God, if you've never read it, I encourage you to do so, he says, the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not merely that he is holy, or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say God is holy, holy, holy. Holiness is the one thing that God said about himself in this fashion. No attribute of his is repeated three times like holiness. Your sin grieves the Holy Spirit because he is holy, holy, holy. We so glibly glide past our sins. Because we're good at making excuses for ourselves. I mean, if there's anything we're good at, it's excusing wrongdoings. We're at least good at that. But your sin grieves the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Many a young boy has been kept from many youthful transgressions with the mere thought of what his mother would think if she knew what he was about to do. (laughs) And on a much grander scale, because every analogy breaks down at some point. We have a motive to do right and to live righteously that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit. This is a chief motivation, is it not? A father feels a pang if he sees that his child makes no account of some precious gift that he bestowed upon him. A loving friend standing on the shoreline and calling out to his friends in the boats as they drift towards the rapids will be hurt if the friend does not cling on to the lifeline. The Divine Spirit pleads with us. He proffers us. He pushes us. He says, don't do this. And then we do it. And what is his reaction? His reaction is not zero. His reaction is that it hurts. 
Now, as I conclude, I'm going to rely on the points Charles Spurgeon used when he preached a sermon entitled, Grieve Not the Holy Spirit. And he actually preached from this verse, and I want to use his points as we conclude because I could rewrite them, but I felt that his points were more helpful than if, if I had tried to do it for you. Here's what he says. If, what if we persist in our rebellion? What if in light of all that we just heard, we still sin, but we're believers? What would happen? Well, you will suffer the Spirit's loving discipline, Spurgeon says. <laughs> Hebrews 12 makes it clear that God loves his children And so he disciplines us so that he will share his holiness with us. If we are aware of some sin that has led to the trial, we should confess it to the Lord and learn from it and avoid that sin at all costs. But if we persist, we will suffer the Spirit's loving discipline. Number two, you will lose the sense of the Spirit's presence. Since the day of Pentecost, the Spirit permanently indwells believers. But... If we sin, we will lose the sense of that presence. Not that he left us, but as we likened and used the allegory from Bunyan's Holy War where Mr. Conscience kept getting moved to a more inward-facing room until while Mr. Conscience still was saying the same things, he wasn't heard as much. It is possible to sin, sin, sin so many times that the prick of the conscience that is in the Holy Spirit telling us, don't, 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 there's a callus that begins to grow so we no longer feel it like we should. Now eventually... In God's loving discipline, I believe he will rip that callus off. We see that even in the life of Joseph's brothers. The Bible makes it very clear when they threw Joseph into that pit, they heard their brother in that pit. Years later, they come to Egypt. You know the story. And there they are, and Joseph makes himself strange to them. He hides himself from his brothers. They don't know what's going on or who he is. They get thrown into prison, and there, 20 years later in prison, not having really any knowledge that Joseph is even alive, they say to each other, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we heard the anguish of his soul when we threw him into that pit. Think about that for a moment. You mean they lived with a guilty conscience for 20 years and now an unrelated difficulty arises and they think it's a result of that? Proverbs tells us exactly that's what's going to happen. The wicked flee when no man pursues them. That's what Proverbs says. You will lose that sense, and you will lose the sense of God's love. Does God stop loving you? Certainly not, but you can lose that sense of love, as this passage indicated. And you will lose the joy of your salvation. For this point, we come right from David. David would pray in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Not that I lost my salvation, but I lost something of the joy. You will lose that soul. You will lose the assurance of your salvation. First John gives us many ways that we can be assured of salvation. If you are struggling with the assurance of your salvation, no better book is there to read than the book of First John. But it is clear that if we are grieving the Spirit through our sin, we cannot enjoy the assurance of our salvation. After all, this verse does say, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, who is the one or whereby you are sealed unto the day of your redemption. So the grief of the Holy Spirit, if you push him aside, that assurance is also pushed to the aside. 
and you will lose God's comfort in your trials. You cannot draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy in your trials if at the same time you are grieving God's Spirit. This doesn't work that way. You can't at one point cry out to God to give you comfort if at the same time the Holy Spirit, who is elsewhere called the Comforter, is the one that you are grieving. You will lose the assurance of answered prayer. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Did you know that first Peter actually tells husbands something that should cause husbands to shudder? In 1 Peter, Peter writes and says that husbands, at times, do not have their answers to their prayer, and God will not hear them because they are not living in a loving relationship with their wife. That's only given to husbands, by the way. One person said, why don't we have more men praying? I think maybe because maybe even if they did, God wouldn't answer their prayers. That's pretty strong. Well, I didn't write it. 1 Peter did. More specifically, God did. His Spirit did. He will hear a a prayer of repentance. But we cannot ask God to bless us and answer our prayer if we are not repenting. You will lose the ability to bear fruit and, for that matter, to gain reward in your service for Christ. If your heart is not in fellowship with the Spirit, you cannot rely on Him to produce lasting fruit. You cannot even rely on the Spirit to allow you to be used in God's army. If you're not with God, how can He possibly let you use Him? And number nine, you will lose the joy of fellowship with other believers. This should become obvious in this passage we've already looked at. Sin not only creates distance between you and God, it also creates distance between you and others. If you're grieving the Spirit through, the sin, through sin, you will hate being around godly Christians who will, if they are godly, push you to repent of your sin. And eventually you just won't want to be around them because they're going to constantly tell you, you need to get right with God. If you have a good godly friend, that's what they'll do. But if you will repent, eventually you're going to just not want to keep coming back to church because every time you come back to the church, that same friend who really does love you is going to tell you, have you made that right? And if you keep every week not making that right, it's really going to push you apart. It's not God pushing you apart. You're running away. That's why James would say, draw nigh to God, then he will draw nigh to you. They say, boy, I wish there was like a great revival verse. There's the best one I can think of. Rand Hummel, who's now the director of the Wilds of New England, used to say, you are as close to God as you want to be. The same is true for the work of the Holy Spirit. You are as close and as filled with the Holy Spirit tonight as you want to be. And so Paul, after, well, listing, and then he'll list some more, put smack there in verse 30, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. We have now spent almost 10 different messages on the Holy Spirit. Who thought we could milk that much out of the doctrine of pneumatology, right? Probably milk a little bit more out. And as we've gone through it, we have dealt with the hairy stuff and the, and, and the practical. And tonight is more practical as we land this plane. Because ultimately, the Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a person. And there is a motivation in this life for living righteous and for living godly. The motivation is, I want a close relationship with God. I want a close relationship with God's Spirit. 
And my prayer is that that is your prayer this evening. I, I want that. I desire that. More than anything, I want to have a close relationship with God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for the series we've been able to look at in the series on pneumatology and what it means to, that the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity and all of the intricacies and the workings out of all of that. Lord, as we close this evening, may we understand that you are not an it. The Holy Spirit is not an it, but a person, one that can be grieved. May we draw nigh to you, even as you draw close to us. pray this in your name. Amen.